Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Mark, and I'm one of the elders here at uh, Grace Chapel, and I get to walk us through our text this morning. Um, If you have a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 24, and we're going to begin reading in verse 10, and we're going to read through verse 23. So Acts chapter 24, 10 through 23. And this is Paul making a defense in front of the Roman, uh, <clears throat> Roman governor, Felix. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Know that for many years you have been a judge over this nation. I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogue or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, several years ago, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than that, this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Let's pray. Lord, your word is powerful, and the story of, of Paul's passion for the gospel um, gives us courage in our own quest to communicate the truth of what you've done for us to the people who don't yet know you. I pray as we, as we hear from your word today that we would uh, be given the strength to do what we need to do. In Christ's name, amen. So Acts is unique amongst the first century literature. The other New Testament writers, they wrote gospels and epistles, but Luke wrote a two-volume history of Jesus and the church. So Luke and Acts go together as a unit, and that makes Luke unique. So why did he do what none of the other New Testament writers did? Well, Bible scholars, they think the clue lies in the vocabulary and in the style of the work. Howard Marshall, in his Acts commentary, says one of the most striking aspects of the literary style of Acts is that it is written in the style of the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint. And how that came to be is between the two Testaments— At the conclusion of the writing of the Old Testament, about 300 B.C., a group of scholars got together and they said, you know, 
The problem is none of our people read Hebrew anymore. But everybody can read Greek, so we need to make an, an official translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek. And that's called the Septuagint. Now, why does it matter that Luke adopted the style of the Septuagint? He borrowed from it stylistically and in the vocabulary. And again, Howard Marshall thinks that that tells us that Luke saw his gospel and the book of Acts as a continuation of the one unified story of redemption in the Hebrew Bible. In other words, the story of Jesus and the establishment of his church is the next installment of God's great redemptive narrative, which means that Luke is demonstrating in Acts how the church a body made up of Jews and Gentiles stands in continuity with the teaching of the Old Testament. And we're going to explore the implications of that this morning. So, three things, three tasks this morning. First, we're going to rehearse what's happened to Paul since chapter 21. Second, we're going to drill down on some specific elements of Paul's defense in chapter 24. And third, we're going to consider why the Jewish leadership was so resistant to Gentile inclusion into the people of God. Okay, saddle up. Here we go. Paul's in jail. Let's rehearse how he ended up in Herod's guardhouse. So back in chapter 21, Paul came to Jerusalem to visit James and the other apostles. He told them all that God had done among the Gentiles. Well, James had some news for Paul. Somebody had been slandering Paul by saying he taught the Jewish converts to abandon circumcision and the customs of the Torah. Well, to counter that lie, James told Paul and four other guys, what you need to do is you need to go through ritual ritual purification, make offerings at the temple, and that will show people that Paul is living in observance of the law of Moses. And that's what they did. So while they were in the temple, some of Paul's opponents started agitating the crowd. And some of the Jews who had followed Paul all the way from Asia Minor, they started yelling, saying that Paul had brought Greeks into the temple. Now, bringing Gentiles into the temple would defile it, and that really riled up the Jews who were there. So much so that a riot broke out. The Romans hate riots. And so the Roman soldiers came to the temple and grabbed Paul, hauled him off to the barracks while the people were trying to kill him. At the barracks, Paul explained to the Roman tribune who he was, how the riot started. Paul asked to be allowed to talk to the crowd that had assembled outside. Tribune said, yes, and so Paul does. And so beginning in Acts 22, he tells the crowd the story of his conversion on the Damascus road, and then he ends his speech to the temple crowd by recalling how Jesus had also appeared to him when he was in a trance at the temple. And that speech ends in a riot. Next, a whole bunch of other things happen to Paul. Romans start to flog him because of the riot, but they have to stop because they learn he's a Roman citizen. He's interrogated by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and then he gets beat up again. Jesus appears to him again. There's a failed assassination attempt. Then 400 Roman soldiers haul Paul off to Caesarea in the middle of the night where he meets with the Roman governor, and that's the end of chapter 23. It's a bad day. At the beginning of chapter 24, the high priest and some elders from Jerusalem show up, and they bring formal charges against Paul. And they've hired this Roman attorney named Tertullus, to be their prosecutor. And in verse 5, Tertullus called Paul a plague. But worse than that, he accused him of stirring up riots among the Jews. Now, this is serious because the Romans hate riots. And the Jews were notorious for rebelling against whoever was the occupying force, and the Romans also hate rebellion. So, 
Tertullus also accuses Paul of being a leader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, the Greek word for sect here is heresis, and it can be neutral, kind of like our word denomination, but in this case, it's being used pejoratively, and eventually the word comes into the English language as the word heresy. So that sort of tells you what they think of Paul. Paul is a heretic. Okay, well, that catches us up to today's text. So the second task, beginning in chapter 24, verse 10, Paul begins his defense in the style of the day, and like everybody does, you start with flattery. And then in verse 11, he flatly denies the charges, and he calls out his accusers. And now in verse 14, he doubles down and insists that everything he's done and said agrees with the teaching of the law and the prophets. Here's verses 14 and 15. Take a look at those. This I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Paul makes another point, I think, here in verse 14. He connects his actions to this thing called the way. And my notes say, at this point, I'm to interject a relevant cultural context. So, Mandalorian fans, this is where we all get to say, this is the way. Anyway, I think Luke includes Paul's way reference because he wants to create a hyperlink back to Acts chapter 9 where the way is first introduced. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2 says this, Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So in Acts 24, Paul explicitly connects himself with the very people he was traveling to Damascus to murder back in Acts chapter 9, just before his encounter with Jesus. And because of his encounter with Jesus, he is able to identify himself with those very people. The way is now Paul's people. Okay, so earlier we noted in Acts that Luke repurposes the language of the Septuagint for the purposes of showing continuity. Well, this is one of those instances, because the the Greek way for way is odos, or odon, and that work is all over the Greek Old Testament. For example, probably have heard this verse from Proverbs, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. So it's a common word, and Luke is repurposing it here. So for an individual, a way is a set of dispositions, beliefs, and rituals that produce patterns of behavior that become habits, and those habits become your character. Now, that's individually. Corporately, a way is also a set of dispositions and beliefs and rituals that produce patterns of behavior that become habits. And these become the cultural memory that shapes how we understand the world. That's a way. Paul left his old way, the way of Jewish nationalism. And he joined another way, the way of Christ. And this put him on one side of a conflict between two competing ways. 
Now, in verse 20, Acts 24, verse 20, look there. Paul winds up his defense, and he says, Let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Now, I think Luke wants us to think more than just a general resurrection of the wicked and the righteous here. Because there's really only one resurrection that ultimately mattered to Paul. And that is what he wrote about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 to 9. I want to read this because this is fundamental. This is what Paul says about resurrection. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. On the front of your bulletin, there is a passage, Acts chapter 23, verse 11. This is a passage where Jesus tells Paul that he will testify to the facts in Rome. Well, what we just heard are the facts that Paul testifies to, the fundamental fact of the resurrection of Jesus. So Paul suggests that the wrongdoing that he's being condemned for is his belief in the resurrection. And I think that's true as far as it goes. But it seems, though, that he wants us to recognize that Paul is also pushing back against the way of the Jewish religious leaders. Here's what I mean. Uh, If you turn to Acts chapter 22, if you have your Bibles there, verses 18 to 23, this is another telling of an encounter with the risen Christ. Paul is describing the vision to the Jewish religious leaders and the rioters. So in Acts 22, in verse 21, Jesus is speaking. He says, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And Paul says, up to this word, the crowd listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth for he should not be allowed to live. Seems kind of strange. Initially, Paul's hearers seemed to be willing to at least hear him out. So what was it that sent the crowd back into riot mode? Well, verse 22 says, up to this word, the crowd listened to him. So what was the word that triggered the crowd? The word was Gentiles. And in Greek, the word is ethne or ethnos, and we get the English word ethnic or ethnicity from it. And we're going to come back to the significance of that here in just a little bit. Throughout history, Jews and Christians have had tensions. Uh, and over time, the animosity has flowed both ways. But in Paul days, Paul's day, Christians, the sect, the heresy, had, no, had next to no material or political or religious power. But that was changing. People, both Jews and Gentiles, the ethne, were flocking into this new way. 
Lives were being transformed by the gospel, and the entrenched powers were beginning to feel threatened. Now, it's easy to see why the Romans were annoyed. They hated riots, they hated rebellions, and everywhere Paul went, there was a riot. But why the Jewish leadership? Why doesn't Jewish leadership, like Luke and the Jewish apostles, think that the story of Jesus and the establishment of the church is a continuation of the one unified story? Why is Gentile inclusion into the story of redemption so scandalous to them? Well, there are lots of reasons, but we're going to consider three reasons why it's such a scandal. First one, they have a distorted understanding of Israel's election. Second one, they're afraid of the loss of power and of status. And third, they're afraid of cultural contamination by the Gentiles. Let's look at each of these. So what was the source of Israel's distorted view of her election? First, it's clear that in the scriptures that Israel was uniquely chosen by the Lord to be a particular kind of people. In Exodus chapter 19, we read this, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation means to live in a particular way. And living that way is supposed to be a sign to the other ethne. It's really easy to forget that in the divine economy, you are holy because you are chosen, and you are not chosen because you are holy. By Jesus' day, many of the leaders in Judah had forgotten that. The second reason the leaders of Judah felt threatened by the story of Jesus was they feared losing power and status. We see that. Just after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, in John chapter 11, we read this. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Another expression of that kind of fear is in the next chapter, John chapter 12. We read this, Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now, the final reason for the resistance we're going to consider is the fear of cultural contamination by the Gentiles, the ethnos. It it may be easiest to see this as the gospel begins to spread in the book of Acts. The new church is primarily Jewish in makeup, and Gentile inclusion is the theological question in the book. Gentile inclusion is the first topic of the first ever church council, the Jerusalem council, and it results in the first authoritative letter ever written by a council. For the early church, the center of controversy of Gentile inclusion comes out of Peter's vision in Acts 10. It's the Lord's revelation of what Gentile inclusion means. And Peter explained what what that vision means to, to a group of Gentiles, and he says this, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person 
common or unclean. And during the deliberations of the Jerusalem council, James, who was sort of the the head honcho at that time, he says, brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets, Amos agrees. Amos says, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. So based upon what he's seen and what he's heard from Peter and has read in the prophets, James says this, my judgment is that we should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to God. James is Jewish through and through, but he has come to affirm what the religious leaders of Judah will not. That Gentile inclusion has always been part of God's redemptive plan. And that's what Paul's in trouble for. Let's close out this morning. I'd like to ask three questions for us to think about in light of what we've considered this morning. First question, do you or I ever operate from a distorted understanding of our own election or God's own choosing of us? Does Grace Chapel collectively Does the evangelical church in general, do we ever forget or ignore that in the divine economy we are holy because we are chosen and not chosen because we are holy? Second, do you or I ever fear the loss of power or status? Does Grace Chapel, does evangelical church in general, do we ever say or not say things in order to accommodate the culture? Are there teachings in scriptures that we just don't talk about because they're too countercultural? Do we ever love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God? Have you ever not said something because of what the consequences might be? Third, do you or I ever fear cultural, theological, or social contamination from people who are not like us? Does Grace Chapel, does evangelicalism in general, do we believe that it's possible to be inviting while still maintaining the way? Last thing, we've talked this morning a lot about competing ways. But of course, in the end, there is only one way. And Jesus said this about himself, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. My hope this morning is that you have embraced the way, the person, not the path. If you haven't, why not? Is it fear of what the consequence might be? Well, today would be a good day to embrace the way, the man, and I promise you, he will take you down a path that is well worth walking. Let's pray. Father, you sent your son to be our way. That's how, that's how we can be in relationship with you, is because of the way. We pray that 
you would you would walk us past the fears we might have, whether it's beginning a relationship with you or or standing firm in the truth. Lord, I thank you for each person that's here, and I pray that you will bless them in this day. In Christ's name, amen.